All right, you guys, we're going to get started. Everybody find your seat. We're going to get started this morning. Welcome to the Young Adult Bible Fellowship class Sunday morning. It's good to see all of you. And uh, I'm going to start us off in a word of prayer, and then we'll get right into our study. Handouts are up here, along with pens. Thanks to Sherry Lee. And... Um, let, let me pray for us and we'll get right into what we need to discuss this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are just so grateful to you. Your mercies truly are new every morning, and we experience that even today. And so we give you thanks and praise that you're merciful to us, that you're gracious to us. We deserve your judgment because we have violated your law and uh, countless times, and we don't love you as we ought, and so your holiness requires that we be judged, and yet you've withheld your judgment, not only withheld your judgment, but placed it upon your Son, that through faith in Him we might be forgiven of our sins and washed clean and uh, because of what He has done on our behalf. And now we come into this study as Christians, as believers who have been born again, regenerate on the inside, and our minds are being renewed. And our minds are re being renewed about what marriage is all about, what relationships are all about, what singleness is all about what uh, dating is all about. What, is, what does this look like as, as believers who are being renewed on the inside to think your thoughts after you, to think according to your word, according to how we are designed. So just give us help now as we study these important truths from your word that we might grow, that we might reflect for a watching world uh, what your glory truly entails in the creation of man and woman but also that we might experience the joy of living according to your word, which you have promised for those who trust you and walk according to your ways. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so grab your sheets and look at the top. We are doing now, last lesson was stepping back and just looking at God's creation of men and women in his image. And the goal of that study was for you to appreciate not only how God had created you as either man or woman, but also then to look out and appreciate how God has created the other gender and be thankful for that. If you're a woman, be thankful for God's creation of men. And if you're a man, be thankful for God's creation of women and to recognize and appreciate the differences that God has built into us for his glory and for our joy and flourishing. And that was two lessons or two messages worth in that one lesson. And now we're on the second lesson, which is a biblical theology of marriage. And then the next lesson will be a biblical theology of singleness. And when I say biblical theology, I don't mean theology that simply comes from the Bible. I mean tracing the development of a particular theme or particular theology from Genesis to Revelation through the unfolding storyline of God's redemptive purposes in Scripture. So that we can see, especially with marriage, and especially with singleness, because we'll see even today that there is a change. As you make your way through Scripture, there is a change with the way marriage and singleness is handled in Scripture. So we can't just dive into Scripture and start pulling out verses. We actually have to follow here, as the example, follow marriage from Genesis to Revelation. is That's what we're going to be doing today and next week. So there'll be two messages in this lesson. And then when we do singleness, there'll be at least two messages uh, in our study of a biblical theology of singleness. So you can see here message one, the creation, perversion, and protection of marriage. Okay. And remember, this is 
This is a study on relationships. That's what it says here at the top of your sheets. This is a series on relationships, Christ-centered relationships, friendship and romance to the glory of God. But in order to rightly handle that subject, we have to step all the way back and understand our relationship as men and women created in the image of God, which is why we started where we did last week and the week before, and which is why now we're going to talk about a theology of marriage and then a theology of singleness and then understanding manhood and womanhood in light of Scripture and so on, so that we can finally actually begin to talk about friendship and romance with the right biblical foundations. We can't just jump into that topic as much as I know you guys are really wanting to. Don't worry. Like, we're going to get there. But I mentioned this last week. If we are going to understand these things rightly... And we're going to be confronted with a lot of thinking in the world that's not biblical, not helpful. And we need to build from the foundations all the way upward because that's what other folks are doing with, with, when they're trying to present their worldview. So I mentioned I was listening to a book uh, by a psychologist has maybe a generally theistic worldview. Um, it's hard to tell. Not a, not a Christian person, but generally maybe theistic. But they are presenting their case for how to be happy and single, but they don't just jump in to start talking about singleness. They build from the ground up to give you a whole worldview as to how to be happy. This is how you define happiness. This is who we are as people. And she has ideas and notions that are different, significantly different than the way Scripture would have us understand these things. And then she builds on top of that and ends with, this is how to be single and happy. So if we're going to counter that kind of thinking that's built upon non-biblical foundations, then we can't just jump into friendship and romance. We actually have to start from the bottom and build our way up. That's what we're doing. That's why I started with male and female, he created him. That was our first lesson. And now a biblical theology of marriage and then a biblical theology of singleness and so on. Okay. So stay with us. All these messages are being recorded and put on our Young uh, Professionals page on the website so that you can go back and listen to them if you need to. But I want you to hang in there and continue to walk with me through all of this so that you can think clearly about uh, friendship and romance to the glory of God. So let's return back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 and following. We saw in lesson 1 that God created Adam and saw that it was not in Adam saw. God actually first says that it was not good for man to be alone. And so God's going to create a fellow image bearer. He had paraded out the animals in front of him, in front of Adam. Adam recognized himself that none of these would fit for being a help, a true helper to him. And they would help in some ways, but there's something different, something not complete here. And so God's going to create from his own body a helper that is fit for him. And we are taking these texts as what actually happened. These are not mythological. These are not fanciful. They're not legendary. These are what happened. This is written in a, as a historical narrative. And says, Then God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed, had, for, had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a help found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its flesh uh, its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man, and the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
And then we're going to get to verse 24. Therefore, so consider what, when Moses is writing this, he is Moses as in Moses in Israel. Moses who has delivered Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And he's, he's looking around and considering the reality in Israel and the reality in the, exist, the surrounding nations that there's something called marriage that people enter into, that men and women just enter into. It's, it's, it's something that happens. And he is giving now the creational basis for why that's happening. Therefore, what I just explained to you about Adam being without a helpmate, God creating a helpmate from his very body, that creational reality is the, now the basis for Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is the creational basis for why marriage exists. God created from the woman, or from the man, the woman, to be the man's complementary helper in subduing the earth and in multiplying images across the earth, and they shall become one flesh. So I just want us to think about this for a moment. What, what is the result, the immediate result of God creating another complementary image bearer? The immediate result is what? Marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Remember, he's, he's describing for Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. God is revealing himself and his purposes for creation to Israel and only Israel. And now Moses is describing for Israel the creational basis for why they enter into marriage, showing us that the moment God makes a complementary image bearer, what results from that is marriage, showing that marriage is at the very center of creation. It's at the very center of creation. Now, remember I said we need to do a biblical theology of marriage because things are going to change in, in, uh, somewhat at the coming of Christ. But this is the way that God intended for his image bearers to be multiplied across the earth. One author writes, says it like this, quote, marriage wasn't an option or an incidental arrangement in God's agenda. It was right there at the center, tying together the two most significant characters in this new and epic story. So marriage is not a social convention. It's not something that is developed over time as something that's necessary for our survival. It was given to be at the very center of creation. Man and woman together in order to multiply over the earth. But then I want us to step back real quick and, and ask the question, go a little deeper here. Why did God create marriage? Now, we already answered that question partially by saying, well, one of the reasons is that it was necessary to multiply images across the earth. Men and women are created differently, and one of the fundamental differences is our compatibility to reproduce. Men are created in a particular way with particular reproductive capacities, and woman is created in a particular way with particular reproductive capacities, and the only way that reproduction can happen is if the man and the woman come together. It's the only way it can happen. Even now, with the technology we have to do that outside of the womb, you still have to take from the man and the woman and from their respective reproductive capacities to produce whatever needs to be produced to create another human being. So you have to have the man and the woman to bring about 
the multiplication of God's images. Remember, God placed his image on earth and his glory will be spread through these images multiplying, right? An implicit argument for, I won't even say implicit, an explicit argument for the existence of God is a person sitting right next to you. They're created in God's image. You want to, you want to, you want to behold God's image? You want, to, you want to know God exists? Just turn to the person next to you. That is God's image. God has created us in his image. And, and he's created man and woman, and, and he's brought them together in marriage. And now we want to ask, we want to go even deeper and ask, why create marriage? Well, the Sunday school answer that you all should, should say is, the first one is, why did God create marriage? And you would say, for his glory. Thank you, Melinda. Now, we don't make light of that because it really is the case. God does all things for his glory. And I had a really great question for one of our um, uh, young professionals the other night. How do I understand God's glory and my joy? Are they, are they at odds with one another? And I would say no. God is glorifying himself because that is the right thing for the most glorious being to do in the universe but he's not some sort of vain person, narcissistic person in heaven saying, praise me, praise me for, for no other reason except to get praise. What he's doing is the right thing for a glor- the most glorious being on, in, the, in the universe to do. And what he's doing is he's inviting people in to enjoy the greatest being in the universe. So when he calls us to praise and to worship him and to bring him glory, he's actually doing what is most suitable for your own joy. So God's pursuit of his glory is the same as his pursuit for, of your joy. He wants your joy and your happiness to be bound up in his glory. So why did he create marriage? For his glory. And as we'll see, as we unfold uh, the, the other reasons for why God created marriage, you'll see how your joy is bound up and wrapped up in God's glory. That he's not to be seen as some sort of narcissist. You're a narcissist when you only focus on people praising you and, and wanting, uh, getting the, all the glory for yourself because you're a finite human being that can't offer anybody anything when you're seeking your own glory. Whereas God is an infinitely glorious being who when he invites you to praise and worship and glorify him, you are enjoying the greatest enjoyment that can be offered in this universe. So God's pursuit of his glory is the same as his pursuit for your joy as we will continue to see not only in marriage, but also, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, also in singleness. So he creates for his glory. Let's not demean that and say, well, you know, that's, that God does, all those, does everything for his glory and, and kind of just set it aside flippantly. No, he, he does, and this is important, and it's going to bear out here in the next few reasons. Okay, number two. So that Adam would have a helper to carry out his calling to subdue the earth. So why did God create marriage? He created it for his glory. He created it so that Adam would have a helper to help him, a suitable helper, help him carry out his call to exercise dominion on the earth. That was his calling. He couldn't multiply and he couldn't exercise dominion on the earth without the female image bearer. Eve was the perfect complement to him to help him in his work. The perfect complement. And that's, that's what I was laboring for last week, is in the last two weeks, is to help us to see that each gender is a gift from God. Praise God, it's not all men. Right? And I hope ladies would say, praise God, that's not all ladies either. Right? 
that each gender brings so much to the table. In fact, we need each other in order to fulfill our calling as, as God's image bearer. So Eve is the perfect complement. He, he, she fills in where he is lacking. He doesn't have all the gifts and skills that are required, and she's going to come in and fill in where he's lacking. They're going to work together in perfect harmony. Well, that was the intention until the fall, of course. So God creates marriage for his glory. He creates marriage so that Adam would have a helper to carry out his specific calling. Number three, the, for the, for the pro- procreation and multiplication of images. One person puts it this way, quote, procreation was considered to be an integral part of God's plan for marriage. And we've already talked about why this is the case. God was bringing man and woman together. Through that union comes children. Number four, for raising and discipleship of the next generation. So when God establishes Israel, and now this is how we need to see God's work with Israel. Don't just see God's work. Don't just see the history of Israel as something you try to skip real quickly by so you can get to the good stuff. What God is doing with Israel is he's revealing his plans and intentions for humanity. But he's doing it narrowly with one nation. He's revealing himself, his character, his nature, and his law to one nation. But that is an indication of how he, he wants humankind to live. And so here in Deuteronomy 6, as an example, the intention was that husbands and wives would get married and have children and then raise those children to fear their creator. Verse 4 of chapter 6 in Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets on your eyes. You shall write them as on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And just backing all the way up to creation, remember when God created Adam, he entrusted him with the commandment. And had things gone well, it would have been Adam's job to, to not only instruct Eve on what that instruction was, what that commandment was, but then to also be proactive in leading their children to be instructed in what that commandment was. That was always God's intention. And so then when he's developing this nation and revealing himself to this specific nation, that intention doesn't change. And now it gets borne out in more detail. It was God's plan that knowledge of the creator would be transmitted from parents to children in this discipleship in the home. And things haven't changed too much. Now that is still God's plan in the Christian home. But nevertheless, I just want us to see, this is one of the reasons... For marriage, you bring the image bearers together, they bear children, and then they disciple and raise those children in the fear and knowledge of their creator. The family is the primary, not only, but the primary place where children are discipled. Not the only place. And again, that's going to be an important piece too as we understand our singleness and what scripture says about that. Number five. Number five. You can write this in bold or you can get you out your calligraphy pen or you can however you want to do it. He, God created marriage, mark this, for the pleasure and happiness of his image bearers. Scripture is so emphatic at this point. But we have to keep 
reminding ourselves because why? What was Satan's first strategy in the garden? To make God look what? Pardon? Unloving, specifically restrictive, prohibitive. That's exactly right. Satan creeps in and he, he twists the, the original commandment to make it sound to, ears, to, to Eve's ears that God was restricting their pleasure and enjoyment. And that lie has been diffused throughout the whole world so that even as Christians, we are still trying to cleanse our palate, okay, of that lie. God creates marriage very specifically for the pleasure and happiness of his image bearers. There's even a passage in Deuteronomy that commands the soldier to stay home for one year to not be involved in active duty to, quote, bring happiness to his wife. That's his job for one year. Anyways, uh, God intended marriage to provide his image bearers great pleasure and joy, and it's the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. Ecclesiastes 9.9 Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Proverbs 5. The latter part of Proverbs 5 is a, I would say, graphic rejoicing, exuberant rejoicing over the pleasure that marriage is intended to give both people. And the Song of Solomon, read rightly, is meant to highlight that same thing as well. So do not miss that. This is not merely functional. God created marriage for the pleasure and the happiness of his image bearers. Number six, for companionship for God's image bearers. It was not good for man to be Alone. It wasn't as though all Adam needed was a partner to help him to be more productive. Kind of this utilitarian approach to marriage. Well, she'll help me get the job done better. That wasn't the goal. It was for companionship. He needed a lifelong companion. Someone with whom he can be most open and most intimate. Someone with whom he can share his life and his love for companionship. The wife was to be his companion, to be his friend. When you're married, your best friend is your spouse. And this is gonna, I, I was gonna bring this up a little later. I think I, I do probably repeat it, it's fine. Um, but I'll just say it again here. This is a key part of why we need to do all this at the beginning before we start talking about friendship and romance. Because when you are married, something in the universe changes. All relationships that you previously have do not end, but they change, I would say, even ontologically, metaphysically, if we can get real uh, uh, complex here. Meaning that now, this relationship that you have with the husband and the wife is an exclusive kind of relationship and an exclusive kind of love that you do not share with someone else. 
outside of that marriage relationship. The wife, the husband, they are best friends. They are companions. That is God's intention. And, and often what you find in marriages that start to slide or that end up in adultery is that that friendship was lost. That companionship was lost. Well, we'll talk more about that in a, a moment. But that's, that's key for us because the question I think that has come up, it hasn't, not I think, it has come up, especially in the questions that you've submitted and that I've, I've encountered as I've discipled young folks since um, even this, this first came up in seminary, but this, this understanding of how friendships work within the body of Christ prior to and after marriage, you have to understand that regardless of your friendship with a person of the opposite sex now, that relationship will change dramatically. It must after one of you gets married. And if, if that is the case, then that that should guide and kind of dictate the way we conduct ourselves in our friendships with one another now. But we'll talk more about that. I, but I do want to kind of set the foundations for that later discussion. But God created marriage for the companionship of his image bearers. Number seven, to protect his people from sexual immorality. Now, this, of course, becomes more apparent after the fall when such a thing as sexual immorality creeps into the, the creation. But this is Paul's explicit statement in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 3. We're going to do a full, a full Sunday on only 1 Corinthians 7, so we'll come back to this. But chapter, two, or chapter 7, verse 2 says this in 1 Corinthians, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So very explicitly, marriage is given to protect each person from sin, specifically sexual sin. And finally, number eight, to, pre- to reflect the relationship that Christ shares with his church. Everything about marriage is meant to point to something greater. Marriage, earthly marriage, is only temporary. Yet another important point for when we talk about singleness and relationships and dating. As hard as it is right now to conceive of being single for the rest of your life, if that's God's calling, as hard as that is to conceive of, marriage is only temporary. In fact, in the light of eternity, it is barely a blip. But it's meant to point to something greater, namely Christ's relationship with his church. That's why God created it. If you read the New Testament, if you're familiar with the New Testament, then you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and you read about the the marriage account, you're like thinking, there's just earthly marriage can't be the only thing that it's pointing to. It must, you just, it must be pointing to something greater, and, and indeed it is. And that's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. It's pointing to Christ's relationship with his church, a relationship that will someday be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth when we are his, as a corporate body, his bride. And there's so much there that we'll have to talk about in a little bit. The intimacy, the leadership, 
the provision, the relationship, all of those things are meant to reflect the way Christ relates to his church and the way his church relates to him. It's a cosmic reality that some people in God's calling have an opportunity to reflect in their marriage. Well, sadly, only a generation later, uh, there's the perversion of marriage. You can turn back to Genesis chapter 4. Now, this is our next section. So we've just looked at the creation of marriage, why God created marriage, and now we're looking at the perversion of marriage. The creation of marriage, and now the perversion of marriage. This is just brief, because this text is now going to give us the basis for how we can understand so much of the Old Testament, which has, let's be honest, quite a bit of polygamy. Let's just be frank here. Quite a bit of it. Was that God's intention? No, it was not God's intention. As one author has said, the essence of marriage is its exclusivity. To be exclusive in marriage is its very essence. Um, but what happens? Verse, uh, well, we'll just see, uh, verse 18. To Enoch was born Erad. Erad uh, fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methuselah. And Methuselah, oops, sorry, Methuselah. And Methuselah fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. Now, you don't just skip past that and think that that's some sort of passing comment. Moses knows exactly what he's writing. And he knows what he, exactly what he just had written. Namely, Genesis 2.24, or even before that, when the, there's a solitary man and there's a solitary woman after she's created and he brings them, God brings them together and the man shall leave his family, his father and mother, and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Everything about that indicates that it is one man, one woman, not one man, and multiple women. You cannot become one flesh with multiple women. This one flesh union now is violated and perverted by Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. And the name of one of them is Adah and the other one is Zilha. And, and he not only is, I mean, his whole, his whole character is just is, is coming out here. And he's not only a polygamist, he's exceedingly violent. Look at what he says here. Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I mean, you could just... Boy, these poor ladies, right? These poor women. I have killed a man for wounding me. So he is inherently unjust. The punishment he mets out is, is not in accordance with the crime committed. I have killed a man for wounding me. So that's not... That doesn't fit the crime. And a young man for striking me. So if you even mess with Lamech, you're going to die. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold, and from that point on, you see polygamy as as a regular part of life in the ancient Near East, and then even in Israel of all places, you find even the kings taking some of the kings taking multiple wives. Well, the description of what happens in the ancient Near East and even in Israel is not a prescription as though that's a good thing, contra um, Mormon teaching, okay? Polygamy is not God's intention. It's not God's design. It's something that he allowed to transpire without pouring out wrath upon people and judging them immediately, but it is not what 
he had intended. The original creation, the description of the original creation and how God unfolded his redemptive plan starting with, uh, with Adam, or I'm sorry, starting with Noah, goes back to Adam and Eve being created and marriage being given as a gift between one man and one woman. All right. So we have the creation of marriage, the perversion of marriage, and now the protection of marriage. So let's move in now to uh, life in Israel. God is going to reveal himself to a solitary nation, not multiple nations, but one nation. He's going to create himself a people so that he can reveal himself and his will and his purpose and his nature to them. What is God like? What does he intend for human beings? What is his design for us as humans? And you can look into Israel to find out a lot of the answers to those questions. Well, one of the main things that God wants to do in Israel is to protect marriage. Protect it. Remember how we said at the beginning that marriage is at the very center of creation and the perversion of it can, will cause all kinds of problems. And so God's going to protect it. But not only that, underlying this, remember, is this protection of marriage because it points to something greater, a cosmic reality, namely Christ and his church, God's relationship with his people. But here's the first indication that God desires deeply to protect marriage. One of the Ten Commandments was this, Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. A short sentence, a very useful sentence, very practical, practical sentence. You can memorize it. You should memorize it. I should memorize it. You shall not commit adultery. It is a gross violation of God's design for marriage to commit adultery. For you as a husband or as a wife, joining together in the most intimate way that two people can be joined together to give yourself to that person an exclusive love for the other in the most close and intimate way to give your very body to them and then to do that with someone else is the deepest betrayal that can happen in human relationship, which is exactly why God uses that as an illustration of his people turning away from him to embrace idols. It's like spiritual adultery. The exclusiveness of marriage, as one person has said, is the essence of marriage. To engage in a one flesh union with someone outside of marriage is a grievous sin against God who created marriage to be exclusive between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. Adultery is the ultimate betrayal because it violates the covenant between a man and a woman who God made to experience the deepest and most precious bonds of intimacy that two people can enjoy in this life. That's not to disparage singleness. That's just to explain what God has created in marriage. It is the ultimate betrayal. Just, boy, to, to have to hear the stories of people that have had adultery committed upon them. It, it just devastates. It's, it's just devastating. Absolutely devastating to the person to whom adultery has been committed with the coming of Christ in the New Testament, we have greater insight into why it's so vital to protect this exclusivity. Earthly marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, and Christ is only faithful to his one bride, and his bride is only to be faithful to him. 
So it has deep theological meaning. But, interestingly, we tend to think of the Old Covenant or the Ten Commandments as just being kind of an external thing. You know, okay, I'll make sure that I don't commit adultery. While meanwhile, I'm coveting every person's wife that I can see here in Israel. Well, God says, Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, which is what? That's a heart issue, isn't it? That's a heart issue. Protecting the marriage covenant meant that the heart needed to be protected as well. And Jesus gets into this in Matthew chapter 5, doesn't he? He even says that mental lust is the committing of mental adultery. It's not the committing of actual adultery. It's the committing of mental adultery. And if not brought under control, will eventually lead to it in some shape, way, shape, or form. So God's not only wanting to protect marriage in Israel by protecting the external institution of it, he's wanting to be protected at the deepest level of who people are. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Be satisfied in your wife. And then you have these glorious passages in the Old Testament themselves, particularly Proverbs 5, we already talked about, the Song of Solomon, where a person's deepest sexual delights are to be found in that marriage relationship. So God is done everything that he can in order to protect marriage in Israel. But, but not only that, so here's where we get a glimpse into God's holiness. So let me just, before we get to Leviticus 20.10, let me just be very clear here. As Christians, we are not under the old covenant. We are not a nation state that Israel was. God oversaw Israel as its king, as its monarch, you might say, and it was a sovereign nation state, and God laid down all of its laws, all of it. It was an exhaustive set of laws and regulations. And one of them reflected God's holiness in the particular area of marriage and adultery. What happens if you commit adultery in Israel? And now we get a glimpse of God's holiness, okay? As hard as our American ears is to hear this, what it should do is give us a glimpse into God's holiness with regard to marriage. Quote, Leviticus 20.20, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And when God is reigning over a nation as king, that is what you do with adulterers. That is not the calling of the church today. And there are some people who are arguing for that. We need to go back to these old covenant laws. No. What these laws do, though, is reveal to us God's holiness on this particular issue. This is how serious God is. This is such a stain in Israel. This is such a pernicious sin that will spread like cancer throughout the congregation that it must be put to death. Now, as a church, we don't put people to death. We exercise church church discipline, hopefully restorative discipline, where sin is confronted. And we hopefully reestablish repentance and relationship and so on. But in Israel, this is what was required. Why? To protect marriage. This is how serious God is about protecting marriage. God created marriage between a man and one woman. He created, created that man and woman would be joined together in an unbreakable one flesh covenant union to go outside that union to become one flesh with another. Woman was to violate God's design for marriage. 
But let's see here. Did I skip a verse? I might have. Ah, yes, I did. Now let's look at Leviticus 20.13. God is so concerned about protecting marriage that he also condemns outrightly, very clearly, homosexuality. Quote, Leviticus 20.13, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Again, this is a glimpse into God's holiness in how he thinks of marriages between a man and a woman. Someone who engages in homosexuality would face the penalty of death. Again, just a reminder, this is not the church's ordinance. We don't deal with sin in this way anymore. We deal, deal uh, with it through putting our own sin to death. We deal with external expressions of sin by church discipline and restorative discipline. Hopefully people come and turn in repentance and are renewed and so on. But this is how God dealt with it in Israel. So what is marriage? So here's a question. I'm, yeah, I have it here on, on a bullet point. What is marriage? Let's define it. I thought, I thought this quote from a, a book by Andreas Kostenberger called God, Marriage, and Family, Rebuilding the Biblical Foundation is just a great quote that describes this marriage as, as covenant. The marriage covenant is defined as, quote, a sacred bond instituted by and publicly entered into before God, whether or not this is acknowledged by the married couple and normally consummated by sexual intercourse. That's what marriage is. It's a sacred bond instituted by and publicly entered into before God, and I would add before the congregation in, in, in a Christian marriage, but he's trying to expand it out even to involve all people. And it's normally consummated by sexual intercourse. The, the, the consummation is meant to be the seal of the covenant. It should not come before the covenant is made publicly before God and man. But it, it usually is. But here's the problem, and I tried to explain this to uh, someone who was close to me years ago. They didn't follow my counsel. But I said, listen, the person that you're, the, you're currently sleeping with, when you, once you get married, you're going to have a hard time at some point, whether it's two years down the road, five years down the road, ten years down the road, you're going to find yourself just having a hard time trusting them. Are they faithful to me? Are they faithful to me? I'm just not sure. Why are you not sure? The reason you're not sure is because by sleeping with you prior to the covenant, they showed you that they don't really care about the covenant so that they have no grounds for why they not, might not do that with somebody else. They don't care about the covenant. So why, if they didn't care about the covenant before you got married, why would they care about, care about the covenant after you got married? They, they violated it before. They could very well violate it after by sleeping with somebody else. So actually what... And this, this, you know, studies show that, you know, living together typically doesn't, living before, together before you're married doesn't typically lead to long-lasting marriage. But secular studies aren't going deep enough to explain why that is the case. The, case, the reason for that is, is because the trust is being broken because in, inherently we know that the covenant is being violated. And if the covenant is being violated now by the person that I am sleeping with, then what is going to stop them from violating the covenant in the future? And so trust is eroded from the very beginning. So sleeping with each other before you're married is, is a big deal. And it has to do with this covenant. 
And it has to do with the consummation of the covenant. Well, what does covenant imply? This is now point two, A, B, C, D, and E. It, it implies, and this is actually coming from Kostenberger's, these, are, these, are, these points uh, came from, these individual points came from Kostenberger's work. I just thought it was really good, and I'm going to add a few things to it. But number one, it implies the permanence of marriage. It implies the permanence of marriage. That's what a covenant is. This is a permanent covenant. Whenever we do um, premarital counseling with folks here at the church, one of the first questions right off is, is divorce an option for you? Because if you're teetering on that, the answer to that question, then we're going to have trouble because covenant means an unbreakable union. Now, we don't mean absolutely because I do believe there are biblical grounds for divorce. And we would never encourage a, a woman to stay with a man who's abusive or otherwise unfaithful. Scripture gives grounds for you to, to exercise divorce when that's the case. But nevertheless, if you're going into marriage looking for the door out, boy, we're just going to have trouble. The covenant implies permanence. Okay? At its core, marriage is, the marriage covenant is a covenant of faithfulness and unbreakable commitment to each other to remain undivided in your affection for one another and exclusive in your sexual fidelity towards one another. That's what the covenant implies. Number two, it implies the sacredness of marriage. Marriage is a sacred, beautiful gift that God I hope we've seen, labored to protect in Israel and is laboring to protect today, particularly among Christians. Marriage is at the center of creation. God created it, established it, defines it, and desires to be glorified in it. It is not salvific. So getting married doesn't save you. Staying single doesn't save you. But it is sacred. Number three, it implies the intimacy of marriage. I've already said this, but marriage is the most intimate relationship that two people can experience in this life. That's just the way God created it. Again, just a reminder, this is not to demean singleness. There is coming a day, I promise you. And you'll just, when we're in the kingdom, we're in the new heavens and the new earth, you'll be like, Derek, what you said was right because it was from the Bible. But uh, it, the, the, the blip of singleness and now that I'm here with Christ and with my brothers and sisters for all eternity, I don't even, I don't even remember it. I don't, I, the, the pain and the struggle and the strife and the, the, the difficulty that it caused me, like, it's just gone. So, nevertheless, though, we do have to reckon with what God did in marriage. This is the, the closest that two people can get. God has so composed the body and the soul that the act of sexual intimacy, they've, they've, they know this now, Physiologically, physiologically. So both, just everything about you is now being bound together. The, 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 it binds the man and the woman together to be one flesh in a physical, spiritual, emotional way. And this is something I've already said. When you leave father and mother and are married, something ontologically changes. All other relationships change. They don't disappear, but they do change. And the, the primary relationships that change is the, the relationships between uh, the parents previously. You leave the father and mother and you join to the, your wife. Or you leave your father and mother and you're joined to your husband. 
And whereas that relationship with your parents was your most important relationship where you respected and you honor them, and you still do, but you respect and honor them. And then when you're in their home, you obey them and you, you depended on them and so on. Now that's changed and your priorities have changed. The greatest priority in your life now is your husband or your wife, not your parents, not even your girlfriends or your boyfriends, your, your, uh, Friends who are girls and friends who are boys and so on. The most important relationship you have now, the most highest priority. And that's sometimes a struggle for newly married people to, to reckon with that reality. In fact, that's one of the biggest struggles that newly married people will have is, is realizing now, and sometimes it's like the ripping and tearing of flesh. You have to talk to your parents and tell them as gently as possible, like, you're not my highest priority anymore. That's the way God created it my husband is or my wife is. Amen. I had to have those conversations with our parents and happily we now have wonderful, delightful relationships with both sets. I love Amy's parents. We have a great relationship. She loves my parents. We have a great relationship. I have a great relationship with my parents. She has a great relationship with her parents, but it took a little bit of struggle. Me talking to both sets of parents, talking to my parents, her talking to her parents. I mean, but now things are, things are really good, but this is often um, a difficult thing to reckon with for newly married couple. Why? Because of what God has created in marriage. It's intimate. It is the most intimate relationship that two people can have, and it's meant to be. Uh, the mutuality of marriage is implied by the covenant. The marriage, quoting now Kostenberger again, marriage is the relationship, or is a relationship of free self-giving of one human being to another. The marriage partners are to be first and foremost concerned about the well-being of the other person and to be committed to each other in steadfast love and devotion. Both of them. Not one, not just the one, but both of them. And then finally, the exclusiveness of marriage. Marriage, by its very essence, is exclusive. This is a relationship, the kind of which you will not and must not share with another person. And like I said, this will serve as a foundation for how we understand friendships in the body of Christ and what they should look like. Should you be friends? If you're a guy, should you have friends who are girls? Yeah. Should you, if you're a girl, should you have your friends that are guys in the body of Christ? Absolutely. But there is a way to conduct those that don't cause problems for us when we finally do get married because those relationships that you had previously will change and they must change. All right, well, marriage was central to Israel's life as a nation and this is where we're gonna wrap up. We'll see if you have any questions before we go, but it, marriage was central to Israel's life as a nation and it was the one of the primary vehicles through which God was going to bless Israel. Okay, Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 14. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the, uh, the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and your young of your flock in the land that he swore your fathers to give you and you shall be blessed above all peoples. Okay, so number one, he will multiply you. The multiplication that would happen through marriage and child rearing. He, that's one of the blessings that God is going to pour upon Israel. And you might be thinking, well, there's, he mentions other blessings. Yes, but as we'll see, this implies marital blessings too because singleness was simply uncommon in Israel. It was uncommon. Marriage was the norm. Okay, and then he says, he will, quote, he will also bless the fruit of your womb. 
God would make men and women of Israel fertile so they would bear children and multiply. Marriage was the normal state for Israelite men and women. Singleness was not the norm, but we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Okay? So the reason why God wanted to protect marriage was for his glory in Israel, but in order so that Israel would display their wisdom to the nations. Israel was meant to be a picture of the glory of God to the nations, and one of the most important aspects of that picture would be how Israel treated marriage. And we'll end with this. This is now Deuteronomy... Um, why didn't I write down the reference? My goodness, I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let me look here. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, I believe. Let's see. Yes. Uh, Keep them and do them, namely his commandments, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who... When they hear of all these statutes, we'll say, surely this is a great nation. This great nation is a wise and understanding people. So that was God's goal in protecting marriage in Israel, so that his glory would shine through Israel and be demonstrated to the nations that they might behold his glory and so on. So that is the first part of our lesson on the biblical theology of marriage. Next week, we will look at the second part and we'll wrap up marriage, and then following week, we'll start our message on singleness. Any questions you have with regard to what we've talked about this morning? Well, if, yes, um, Lucia Chen. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it's Lucia Chen now. For those of you who don't know, she had the same last name prior to her marriage <laughs> as her now husband. Um, I was looking about like, the virgin of marriage and polygamy and why God doesn't directly condemn uh, David and Solomon and some other kings of Israel for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I, I, this has been a challenging question forever. And I, I'm not sure there's a satisfactory answer, um, but that is the case. Um, God even makes uh, a, an implicit statement, a tacit statement to David about how he, would even, he had even given him multiple wives. And you're thinking, how? Did... But there's, there's one thing I think we can say. So I, first of all, I think it's a challenging question. I don't think it overturns Genesis 2.24 in God's original design. Um, there are implicit problems with polygamy that you see. One of the reasons why Solomon... Uh, Solomon drifted is due to his multiple wives and so on. But what you, one of the things you see, and Jesus highlights this in, in the Gospels, is with regard to divorce as an example. Um, divorce was allowed in Israel. And you're thinking, well, okay, then God's okay with divorce. And Jesus says, no, that's not the conclusion you should draw. The conclusion you should draw is that it was your hard-heartedness. So God, God conceded for a time to this divorce thing, and he established some rules for it so it wouldn't get out of hand. But you don't conclude that God's concession on this issue of divorce therefore leads you to conclude, well, Genesis 2.24 is not a big deal. No, Jesus is saying, no, you should recognize that the, 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 what God desires is in Genesis 2.24. So I think you could probably say something similar to about polygamy, that 
we don't, and, but people do draw this conclusion, but it's the wrong conclusion. You don't draw the conclusion that all this description of polygamy and God's allowance of it, even in Israel, is therefore you say, oh, Genesis 2.24, it's not a big deal. Um, men can have multiple wives, right? I don't think you'd come to that conclusion. It is something that God allowed for his purposes, for whatever reason, to, to happen within Israel. Um, perhaps maybe to, to demonstrate in, in tacitly or in implicitly that it does. You're going to find out it causes problems. It's going to be a huge uh, issue um, rather than outright um, condemning it. But it is, it is a challenging question. Now, uh, as you move into the New Testament, though, um, the issue of polygamy is it's not an issue. Like, for example, uh, uh, someone who's qualified to be an elder must be a one-woman man. That's literally what the text says. Um, I think in indicating that God's intention and design is that marriage between be a husband and a wife, and if there's anything outside of that, then you're not even qualified to rule in, in God's church. And so um, I, I think the New Testament ties it up, but for whatever reason, God allowed it in Israel and in some cases without outrightly condemning it. But again, going from G how Jesus handled the divorce issue, I don't think we're led to conclude, therefore, that, oh, God's cool with polygamy. Right, so good question. Any other questions? Yes. How do you sir? like differentiate between laws that apply in the Old Testament? So, for example, the ones you said in Deuteronomy, where like the punishment for adultery was death, versus you know like the Ten Commandments, which we still kind of hold today. Well, so that's a great question. We've been going through this a little bit on Friday nights because we're going through Galatians, and this is the very question that comes up. Um, I would say none of the rules apply. No, we are not under the Old Covenant, period, 100%. Uh, the church is not under the Old Covenant. Um, so then, so, that's, so that's, that's foundational, and I think that's the argument of the New Testament. Christians are not under the, the Old Covenant. We're not a nation state. Um, the Old Covenant was for a specific time in Israel. So, in a sense then, the Ten Commandments, therefore, and I, hear me out, you're not obligated to the Ten Commandments as part of the Old Covenant. Those Ten Commandments, however, seem to be embedded in the, the law, Old Covenant to be a reflection of God's very character. Nevertheless, even with like the, the Ten Commandments themselves, you have something with regard to Sabbath, which we're not obligated to keep anymore. So I would say you're not obligated to keep any of the rules of the Old Covenant, period. And so uh, you come to the New Testament and you find out what God requires. And it is sufficient, the New Testament is sufficient to guide and direct us in what God's will is for our life. But what you're able to do is go back to the Old Covenant and to see what I mentioned you get a glimpse of God's holiness with regard to marriage. You also, as you search through the scripture, I think you gain wisdom on how God manages a nation. And I think you can glean wisdom politically and, and political issues, certain political issues uh, there. Um, so there's a lot of wisdom you can glean, but you have to be very careful to recognize that this is a specific covenant for a specific time in redemptive history that Christians are not obligated to be under any longer. Does that answer your question? Okay, yeah. It's a challenging question, but um, I think that's where we start, to say that Christians are not under any, any rule of the, the Old Covenant.
Anything else? Well, it's 10.05, so I have to let you go now. So, again, if you guys have questions, keep emailing me. Keep asking me afterwards, and hopefully we'll clear everything up. Let's pray, and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, uh, what a rich study we've had in your word. I pray that we continue to be able to go deep, to answer important questions, to get clarity from your word. I pray that you encourage those who are lacking clarity to keep asking questions until they do have clarity. And we just thank, pray that you bless our continued study and bless these hearers. May they receive the word deeply into their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you guys. Uh, again, I, I just request, please pray for me this morning. I'm preaching again, part two of the transgender series, really challenging again this week. So pray for me. I would appreciate it.